welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with one of my absolute heroes, Lucy Sant, about her new book, I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear this interview because obviously, like, I know of Lucy Sant mostly from the kind of world of criticism, but also, you know, really excited to hear about this memoir documenting, like, a pretty major turn in her life. Yeah, I, as I say to Lucy in the interview, you know, I, like, as I just said, I'm a giant fan. She really is one of my favorite writers. And because of that, I had this parasocial relationship with her, like, that I felt like I I knew her. And um, so, but I don't, I don't know her at all. So I was surprised by this transition, by her transition when I read about it. And I had never had an inkling of it at all. And it's so fascinating in the book to hear about how something could be so central to someone's life and could Mm. be repressed so strongly and how her life really formed around creating a version of Luke Sant, who she was before, and how much tending that needed, how much unhappiness it caused. It's really fascinating. And, And how much transition for her wasn't so much about becoming female as becoming someone without a giant secret inside. Mm. I thought that was the most profound aspect of the book for me in a lot of ways is that, you know, it was just about how much she had to hide who she was. And since we're recording this, you know, in the week of Valentine's Day, I feel like the book, without being corny, and Lucy Lucy certainly isn't, you know, the most <laughs> emotive person ever, definitely has yeah. a more dry a less sentimental sense, but I, I do think this book is a real testament to self-love and self-acceptance and a, a really deep research into becoming who you are in a completely not cheesy way, but in a way of really questioning what identity is and um, what gender means beyond you know, how we dress and uh, how we present ourselves in the world. It's something much deeper. Yeah, that's fascinating. Let's get to that interview. Great. I'm very happy to be speaking with the writer Lucy Sant today. Lucy Sant is the author of many books, including the classic New York history, Low Life, Another Urban History, The Other Paris, the autobiography, Factory of Facts, two books on photography history, evidence, and folk photography, and the essay collections Kill All Your Darlings and Maybe the People Would Be the Times. She is the recipient of a Whitting Award, a Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and a Grammy, among other honors. She recently retired from Bard College, where she taught for almost 25 years. She joins me to speak about her latest book, I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition. It is the story of how, as living as Luke for almost the entirety of her life, three years ago, she became Lucy. The book begins with the letter she sent to her closest friends with the bombshell confession that the image of herself as a woman had been the, quote, consuming furnace at the center of her life, but that she had repressed it with almost equal force. 
The book goes on to reflect back on that life from her time growing up in Belgium as the only child of somewhat emotionally distant working class parents to her adolescence as an immigrant in suburban New Jersey. And finally, her nascent adult years as a punk and budding writer in a pre-corporatized New York City. Intercutting this past with the practical steps and transcendent emotions that made up her first few months of transitioning, Sant explores the ways she contorted herself to fit into her male identity and the great unhappiness it caused, as well as the path to finally unburdening herself of her great secret and emerging as Lucy. Thank you, Lucy, so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. So I wanted to start with that moment, that day when your egg cracked which was almost exactly three years ago, you fed a picture of yourself into something called FaceApp on your iPhone. Tell me about what you saw and what it felt like. Well, you know, I sort of knew I was trans beginning maybe age nine or so, 10. But, well, it was impossible for many reasons, right? For many years. One thing that I always wondered was what I would look like I would alter photographs sometimes, you know, and ink eh, never quite was credible to me. And then I passed his picture through FaceApp, just a full head-on shot. And to my astonishment, it came out this rather attractive woman who was also me in every, every feature, every part of the face. And that unleashed something in me. What it cost me to do was to um, find every picture I had of myself beginning about that age of 9, 10, Revelation. And this involved this massive treasure hunt through my entire house, basement to attic. There aren't that many pictures of me, but they're scattered all over hell in baskets and boxes and albums, all kinds of places. And what that did, besides allowing me to past my entire life through the FaceApp filter. It also, I only realized very recently, it broke through my self-imposed time ceiling. I would allow myself to think about being a woman for a very delimited amount of time. You know, it was like half an hour, an hour maybe, and then the boom would come down and I'd be thinking about other things. I imposed this on myself. And what this massive treasure hunt did was turn, it became a project. I'm very susceptible to projects. This went on for like a week of my digging things up and passing them through. I was completely engaged. I did like nothing else that week or so. And then I just had to face the fact that, yes, I'm looking at this computer-generated image which is that of the person who I had been internally all those years. And they match. It was eerie. Like they got the hairstyles right. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So you said that you had known that you were trans at the age of nine. Mm -hmm. What was that realization like? Well, it was very weird because at the time there's no information. I really thought that I was the only person who'd ever wanted this. It was completely out of no references available to me at that time. In early adolescence, I found out about Christine Jorgensen, and then there were like nightclub comedian jokes on late night TV, you know, just like little bits and pieces of things, tabloid stories. 
filtering in. I finally figured out that, no, I'm not alone in this, but it took a, quite a while. So when I first had these feelings, they were strange and I loved them, but I knew that they were not going to fly in my world and I had to repress them. So there became this complicated dance of knowing, not knowing, giving in, holding back, denying, accepting, you know, on and on. So do you think seeing the images of yourself from childhood on helped almost furnish this life that you didn't have? Did the images become almost like a form of evidence for yourself? That's right. Yeah, totally. And by the way, I mean, as soon as I saw those pictures, I knew I was going to write a book about the experience and include those pictures. Mm -hmm. I'm curious also just as someone who spent so much time with photography and looking at images and kind of eliciting paths from pictures, you know, like mm -hmm. that this was the mode, this was the catalyzation for you. Yeah. Like St. Thomas sticking his hand into Christ's side. I had palpable evidence. I'd never had that before. Whatever little experimental drawing or or writing I did in years past on the subject, I immediately destroyed. And so what happens next? Like, how do people, you have this revelation, and maybe mm -hmm. 10 days later or so or less, you write to all your, your friends, and mm -hmm. how did people respond? You know, what was the general feedback that you got? Oh, everybody was great. There were, well, there was one person who was nervous because... He thought I was jumping right into genital surgery. <laughs> but aside from that, everybody was accepting. It did break up my romantic relationship of 14 years, although it didn't affect the friendship itself. But it, some, it became impossible to go on as a couple in those circumstances. So we're still very, very close. You have a son. Mm -hmm. who you, of course, told you don't write very much about what his reaction was. I'm curious if you don't mind sharing it, if that isn't too personal. He took it completely in stride, and his main concern was what he should call me. Because, you know, in part, I mean, we're up here in the hinterlands, maybe, but Raphael went to school in Woodstock. He's an old trans kid since he was about 11. He did a lot of LARPing, live-action role-playing, which attracts Kranz kids like nothing else does. So he was familiar with the sentiment. And um, until last week, he was living with me. He just moved to Boston for a job. His mother and I separated 15 years ago. So he clearly is okay with it. Um, he's taciturn. We never really have a long conversation about anything. So we never had a long conversation about this. But um, he showed by his attitude and by his behavior and reading the book and, and reading the reactions that you write about of people close to you, it seems that the main concern you had so long had was the way other people would react. The thing holding you back, you know, in a lot of ways from coming out was this kind of internalized reaction from other people. Well, it wasn't just other people. I mean, although, yeah, my parents would not have been able to understand at all. I don't know if they would have taken sides in the current, but probably they would have been just bizarre to them. But really, other people, what that means really is women. For two reasons. One of them is that, you know, I'm proposing to join the ranks of women. How are they going to feel about, about it? 
The other being that I'm attracted to women. I'm not attracted to men. And that's always been the case. And that maybe if that hadn't been a factor, I might have actually transitioned decades earlier. It's possible. So you think that what was holding you back was the idea that women would not accept you as another woman. Right. And furthermore, that that was it for um, romantic relationships in my life. Was it also the position that trans people held at the furthest margins of society until only recently? This is true. But, you know, in my world, actually, here's the thing. I mean, I, I was close to Nan Golden and she knew tons of trans people, but they were trans people in a kind of different social, social realm. I mean, I lived in cis, heterosexual cis world for all these years. I was not, I had contacts across the board in every kind of urban subculture of the time, but somehow I wanted to be a woman, but also exist in the world that I was in. I mean, part of it, see, is that the transgender women I was aware of until the 21st century, pretty much, being transgender was their job. And I didn't want that. I'm a writer. I want to write. I didn't want to write about trans subjects the whole rest of my life. You know, it's just one of many things I would write about. Yeah, it's interesting because I, as I said to you before we started taping, I'm such a fan and I've read almost all your work. And of course, I don't know you personally, but when I heard that you had transitioned, I was surprised. I had no inkling from your mm -hmm. work. And beyond that, I thought that a lot of the topics that you had written about, you know, music, photography, history, cities are things that are most often associated actually with men. I mean, despite the fact that I, as a woman, always related so much to your writing. I'm curious about that sense of gender or how you navigated writing those books. If you were holding something back when you were writing, if, you know, if you felt that gender had some play in the way you used to write or oppressing your female self had any purchase on the way you were writing or if that if actually writing was a space where those kind of concerns weren't even coming up. Yeah, I definitely thought of writing as a gender neutral experience, partly because some of the most important literary influences in my life were women. My former boss, Barbara Epstein, editor of the New York Review, Elizabeth Hardwick. These were great women. And um, they, especially Barbara, who was not a writer, she was an editor, but she impressed me as an older person who did not have stereotypical gender attitudes. That is, people my age, of course, I expected women to have much the same interests as men, maybe not obsessive in quite the same ways. But women were interested in music and cities and movies and all these things I was interested in. And with Barbara, you know, I definitely got the sense that interests are not gendered unless you're like taking a political position in some particular way. But nevertheless, it was a bit of a, a mental journey to get to the place where I could say, I'm a woman. Therefore, my interests, my predilections, my habits, those are a woman's interests, predilections, and habits. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Was it different at all to write this book after having transitioned? Did that have any effect on the way you wrote or the process? 
I don't think the gender itself had to do with affecting the process, but what was weird about it is I've never written anything so fast in my life. It took probably less than two months. I was writing like around the clock. I would get up in the morning, start writing, write all afternoon, write into the night, be writing after midnight. I could not stop. I had to force myself to go to bed. It just like all came pouring out. And I did very little revision. I mean, I... I like to cut things down for speed. So I did a bit of that, but really there's, it's almost as it came out. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the way the book is structured and why you wanted to structure it that way. It kind of goes back and forth, as I say in the introduction, um, between your transition and your past. What were you hoping to kind of achieve by that juxtaposition? It was a simple architectural problem. I have two narratives in a sense. One of them is on a micro scale, the other on a macro scale. Which do I put first? Do I start with my birth? Do I tell the whole story of my transition and then say I was born? And I thought, you know, the only way to do them is to interleave them. These vastly different scales of time. And really, it's um, it's an old suspense novel trick. You keep interrupting the narration that is a spur. It's a mechanism for getting the reader through the pages quickly. It's suspense. It's an artificially injected form of suspense. It made it very easy to write as well. I had a little kind of internal alarm clock would go off roughly every seven manuscript pages. Dang, time for a new section. I only started outlining when I was running out of time at the end. You know, I didn't want to have one timeline continue while the other one was stalled. So I had to like do a little trimming then. Some of the sections of the book, you know, about your childhood or kind of the time that you had in New York City are things that you've written about a lot before. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what it was like to go back and revisit that time from the vantage of Lucy or from without this kind of secret embedded within when I started this, my worry was, gee, I've known I was trans for so long and didn't act on it for like 60 years. How am I going to establish that? And it turned out that like I had trans-related memories from every corner of my life. So that wasn't a problem. It was interesting as a way of, again, tunneling through memory. You know, I I've never kept a diary or a journal or anything like that. And in part because I'm lazy, but in part because once you write something down, the memory gets frozen in the writing and it limits it. Pretty soon you can only remember the writing and not the memory itself. So um, I found myself uncovering all kinds of stuff that was not even necessarily connected to gender. Just like memories would spill forth. It's given me material for other things to write, too, now. Are there any examples of that that come to mind, of things well, that have been buried before? Well, not buried, but, you know, just I'd never addressed them before. I had a story in The New Yorker in November. There was a weekend essay. I forget which weekend, November or December. That was about a big story that was revealing of a lot of my relationship with my parents but it had nothing to do with gender, so I couldn't put it in the book, so it had to be a standalone. And what was that story? Oh, my parents sort of adopted these two Belgian graduate students who 
gradually replaced me as the child of the family because I, I wanted out from my family almost as soon as I could conceive of such a thing. And it just right at the right moment, because it was the beginning of my adolescence, these people came in and it was fine, but it was also galling that, you know, my parents had these two new children and I was just kind of like creeping around the back door, you know. And in the story, well, I go on to tell the whole story of my relationship with this couple over the years and up to the near present. Something that comes up here and that I found really fascinating is is your relationship with your parents. And it seems pretty typical, unhappy, disconnected to parents, maybe with a lot unrealized about them, you know, not somewhat narcissistic, not really able to connect to you or teach you much. Also to parents who are um, navigating a, a new place, a new culture, having moved from more of a rural small family life in Belgium to being in suburban New Jersey. I wonder if you, do you feel like had you transitioned earlier that your relationship with your parents would have been different? Yeah, it would have been, it would have ceased to exist probably. Or my mother, <laughs> well, if I'd come out while I was still under their roof, under the age of 18, They'd have sent me to the Benedictine Monastery in uh, wherever that was in northern New Jersey, and I would have never been heard from again, you know. And if it had happened later, it would have been complete rupture. I mean, it would have been the end because my father was rather more liberal and he was a reader. You know, he, he quit school at 14, but he was a reader. So he was much more sophisticated than my mother. But I don't think he would have been able to get it at all. And my, for my mother, it would have been, I turned into a demon from hell. She was a peasant, no education at all, probably never read a whole book in her life. So she was not of an inquiring, and, and also this fanatical Catholic for whom ritual was determined everything. She wasn't even interested in theology. She was only interested in submission. So it would not have gone well at all. <laughs> I see. And how about from you? I mean, in that that when we become who we are, feel confident in who we are, or are happy, sometimes it gives us a lot more empathy for other people. And especially for our parents, we can forgive them what they didn't give us because we have come to the combination yeah. of who we are. So we perhaps begrudge them a lot less. Do you feel like you at least might have been able to, I don't know, want to say love them more, have more emotion for them, anything like that? Gee, that's tough. And I feel guilty about it all the time. But um, I've never really been able to, to forgive my mother. My father would have liked to have been a writer himself. So he was very encouraging. And I'm forever grateful there. My father really was my biggest supporter for many, many years. My mother, though, I mean, she regarded, one of the reasons she didn't read anything was because she might be committing a sin. Whatever she picked up might actually be immoral. And if she read it, she would be committing a sin. And not to mention the fact that she hit me every day for at least six or seven years. No, my mother was really terrible to me. And I'm sorry, she had a lot of problems. But it's, um, 
You know, she didn't give me what a mother should give. I was never, ever, no matter how small I was, I can't think of a single time I ever confided in her. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Lucy Sant, author of I Heard Her Call My Name. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. happy to have Nathan Thrall on the line. His latest book is called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. And he's here to give us a book recommendation. So one of my all-time favorite books is a work of narrative nonfiction by a South African writer and journalist named Rian Milan. And it's called My Traitor's Heart. And it's... Um, really the entire story of South Africa and apartheid in South Africa. He comes from a very elite family. And through his family and his own life story, he was an anti-apartheid white journalist in South Africa. He really tells in, in the richest way the story of South Africa, and he interrogates his own prior beliefs, his own prior sense, youthful sense of himself as a great liberal, how he learns more and more and realizes the shallowness of his previous positions and that they weren't actually as liberal as he thought they were. And it's really such a wonderfully written book, and I can't recommend it more highly. Wow. I've never heard of it. That sounds really... Great. Can you give us the title and author again? It's My Traitor's Heart, and the author is Rian Malan, M-A-L-A-N. The first name is R-I-A-N. It's My Traitor's Heart. Traitor apostrophe S. <laughs> Thank you for that distinction. Okay, I, I'm definitely going to read that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Nathan Thrall, his latest book is A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lucy Sant, author of I Heard Her Call My Name. I have always, from reading your work, kind of had an envy of this time that you lived in New York City. And I love the, you know, the way you've written about it. And here, you know, you kind of say that it's this great ruin and it's, you know, scavenger's heaven and paradise. And you spend a lot of time dancing on the ruins and dancing in actual clubs and meeting fabulous people, many of whom you went to college with and working at the New York Review of Books. It had always had this kind of Edenic sheen to me in your writing. And so I was surprised in reading this to hear that despite that, for so much of your early adulthood, you were so deeply unhappy. I was, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the paradox. I was living at the greatest time of my life, certainly. I mean, especially when I got to New York at 18, it was pretty great when I was in high school, but when I started college is when I started meeting my people and all this stuff was going on. Music, every kind of music, films, literature, not so much, which has definitely stalled my writing career for quite a while because it was not, it was the least hip thing you could do at the time. 
And it was just a wonderful time to be alive. I mean, everything was, there were things going on every day. And for the first and last time in my life, I experienced community from this neighborhood. I couldn't go to the bodega without running into nine people. At the same time, though, I was creatively blocked. I was usually lovelorn and I felt like a worm. I felt non-existent. I felt invisible. So it was a great experience, but internally I was a wreck. I mean, a lot of what you describe in the book seems like kind of run of the mill, finding oneself at a young age. But again, at the same time, you were burdened by this enormous secret that you were holding on to. And I'm wondering, before you mentioned that, you know, you were friendly with Nan Golden. I know that you were saying that kind of like part of this emerging gay culture, that you had tons of friends who are gay. Did you ever think of confiding in anyone, um, talking to anyone about? I didn't trust anyone. I did not trust a, a soul at all. Nobody. The only time I ever, ever spoke about this before February 21 was um, I had a therapist who I trusted enough to tell him that I had tried on my mother's clothes when I was young. And that's as far as it got, because shortly thereafter, he died of a massive heart attack 20 minutes after I left his office. But he was a great guy. He's He actually got me to confide in him in this way that was absolutely unprecedented. But it was, who knows, that was... That was 30 years ago, so maybe things would have turned out differently. I don't know. And it's not like you were cultivating much of a secret life either. No, because I knew that, and I knew this fairly early on, certainly by my 20s, I knew that I couldn't like wear a dress as a joke or for Halloween or to go to a glam rock show or because... If I took that first step, I wasn't coming back. That I knew all along. Some of my favorite parts of the book are just where you describe yourself at length. And I wanted to read a little bit of one of them. This is from later in the book, towards when you're you're a bit older. You said, I loved hanging out, but hated sitting around. I preferred the grimiest parts of the city to places with nice houses and greenery. I hated everybody's family. I hated holidays, seasonal festivities, country weekends, group vacations, family traditions, school reunions, benefit committees, professional friendships, assigned seating, small town society, big city society, competitive consumership, social obligation, rituals of any sort, conformity on any scale, any unelected relationship, any imbalance of power. It seems like in this book, you know yourself very deeply. As much as it's also a book kind of about a transformation. And I was curious if you feel like you're, the repression of this female self helped form, you know, as much as your family history and your family helped form this self and this person who hated all these things, was it also the repression of, of your female self that your kind of identity formed in you know, result of, should we say? Yeah, probably. It's very difficult to reconstruct now because, um, I mean, the, the gender thing, don't forget, is only one of the ingredients that went into this because um, I was an only child. 
I was a deeply isolated immigrant. I recount in the book how I didn't really meet any girls until I was 17. I mean, it's crazy, 16. I was just, you know, this little embattled, encircled family, separated from everything. My parents had no friends. And I was, you know, from the working class. So when I got to the city, I was immediately conscious of being from a lower rung than everybody I knew. So I had a very diminished sense of myself. And the girl part was something that gave me great comfort and pleasure, but something that I had to hide away. I mean, I, you know, it's something I was going to take to my grave. And, um, Gee, all of a sudden I'm reminded of that old story, which I think I learned in Greek class about the boy who steals a fox and uh, when confronted about his theft, he denies it. And he's so stalwart about denying the fact that he stole this fox that the fox starts eating into his chest and kills him. (laughs) This is like a story from antiquity. But that's kind of the situation I was in. And how has it changed now? Now that you have come out, do you find that that personality that you pinpoint so well in the book is different? Or is it the same? I'm pretty much the same person, right? But one thing that's the most startling and immediate change is that I've become absolutely frank about everything. I have nothing to hide now. And it's a weird feeling. It's like... I've been carrying this insane weight all my life, and now it's off me. I'm weightless. Of course, being me, I will fill that up with neuroses of other kinds. You know? <laughs> but, um, but definitely, it's loosened my tongue, and it's made me much more self-confident, really, weirdly. I'm beholden to no one. At the same time, I'm just as isolated as I've ever been. And I think for a lot of trans people who are like over 30 years old, because it's a whole different world for the youth. But those of us who are older are like, every day we conquer new frontiers in loneliness, I think. But it also sounded like you became more social, you were in touch with more people than ever that you... I love the comparison of this time where you're taking a lot of quaaludes and you would call people on the phone all the time and you got this like translation of a, what was the story about with where you reached out somehow to David Rattray and... It's Antoine Artaud did a, a radio broadcast called To Have Done With The Judgment Of God in I think 1948, but it was banned. It was never aired. And I wanted to find a tape of it. You could find transcriptions easily enough, but I wanted, a, you know, a recording. And so I wanted to see, just as a kind of parlor game, how many phone calls it would take to turn up a copy. And it only took two. And David Rattray, who translated Artaud, among others, was right there and we became friends. And it's so amazing, right? Once you're in touch with people, what it can do and this, yeah. these networks that can form. And um, I loved the comparison to the way during the early months of your transition, suddenly you became this very social creature and were mm-hmm. in touch with so many people. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm definitely more social than I have been. The problem is that I really need a trans social life and that doesn't really exist, not for somebody my age. What do you feel in terms of 
what kind of woman are you in terms of how you relate to femininity and the certain ambivalences I think most women feel with images or doctrines of femininity? Mm-hmm. Because there's a part where you write about shortly after you first transitioned and you're walking around New York and you have uh, this synthetic wig and like some polyester shirt and it gets all stained with sweat and mm. you feel like a real disgrace. But actually, although I'm sure the experience is unique to you, I also related to that at times where you just feel like you cannot live up to the standards of impossible standards of femininity, you know, that you're falling short and you're a disgrace. And no matter if you're a cisgender or a trans woman. Well, I wasn't going for any impossible standards. I just want to be reasonable, be not attract the stares of the passers-by. Yeah, I, you know, I'm careful about my appearance, but I'm not neurotic about it. And um, I've always taken my cues on behavior and fashion and self-presentation in general from my friends, from my peers. I mean, I think a lot of older trans women get their identities from the movies or from magazine images or something like that. But I had these, you know, very real models all around me who's still all around me. And so they were the greatest possible teachers, even if they didn't exactly realize they were teaching me. And what else is different now in your life? I mean, the book is, it is, it seems like such a brave step to take. And I, it also, reading the book, you know, I couldn't help but feel just so incredibly happy for you because to walk around with this burden and then to let it go just seemed like the most wonderful thing imaginable. Mm-hmm. So your life has completely changed and yet Not how, you know. That yes. Right. yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, partly because, well, I'm still an only child. I'm still a weirdo immigrant, even though I... I I actually got naturalized in 2016 so I could vote against Trump. So like many years after first coming to live here, I'm still just kind of self-isolating by nature, but I'm proud. I'm happy. I mean, sometimes before the fact, I'll think, here I am going into this gas station in Michigan. Is everybody going to like look at me weird? But then when I'm actually doing it, I don't even notice what people are looking at. So, yeah, I feel very good and very self-confident in that regard. I do worry about my appearance all the time. I'm preoccupied with it. Yeah, I'll confess that. In what way, your appearance? Well, my best, I've only gotten two reviews so far as we speak. And the first one was like the greatest review I've ever gotten in my life. It was in the New Republic. And it was illustrated with a photograph that I thought, why did they run such an ugly picture? Oh, my God, it's just very <laughs> disturbing. And I ran this by like three of the people I am closest to in the world. My ex, my oldest friend, and a third friend. And they all said, oh, Every single one of them said, oh, I love that picture so much. It's so you. It has so much soul. And all I see is this ugly, indeterminate person with a wig on. I mean, it's all I can see. I don't see where they see anything good in that picture. And I think, do I actually look like that instead of 
looking something like what I see in the mirror. So vanity is never far. Mm-hmm. I mean, so do you ever have vanity when you were when you were living as Luke? All the time. Yeah, I was okay. extremely vain creature. I was just as obsessed with clothes then as I am now. Yeah. I loved th- those passages too about being in the old thrift stores. God, that thrift stores used to be so great. Oh, yeah. I see. So there's still the vanity and... Um, oh, yeah. I'm human. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Another thing I was curious about was, you know, this sense of lost things that, mm. you know, you write about, speaking of clothes, you write about all these clothes that you had that your first wife threw out and that your mother having done away with a lot of your possessions when you left home and this many, many crates that your parents lost. Um, and my aunt burning all the family papers about my father's family, about which I know almost nothing. You know, that was maybe the greatest loss of all of them. Yeah, it seems to be my pattern. Right. And that that's, you kind of say like, no, no big prize for making the connection here to the fact that so much of your work has taken place in archives. I also wondered about it in relationship to a lost past in terms of the past that you weren't able to have because you didn't transition earlier, having felt that you had lost so much time. And if that has been soothed at all by now coming out, if if so much of that anxiety perhaps was around something else than the loss of material objects. That's an interesting question because up until the point where I actually, my egg cracked and I transitioned, up until then, I would have said I'm haunted by the feeling, and I write about it a little bit in the book too, you know, that, as mentioned, I mean, my 20s were just the greatest time, that everybody was doing stuff, making stuff, trying out new things, and I barely did any of that. My 20s, as far as, like, my expressing myself were a total bust. When I was a teenager, I was sure I'd published my first book when I was 23. Didn't happen until I was 37. And I was just haunted by the sense that I'd thrown away my youth. That was how I used to phrase it. And it was the thing I would discuss with my therapist every single week. And now that hasn't gone away. It just has a whole new adjunct added to it, which is my alternate life as a girl. And that's where those pictures come in, the objective correlative, the uh, the fictitious reality, the alternate timeline is in those pictures. So yeah, I'm going to be haunted for the rest of my days, but there's nothing I can do about it. That's just the way it came out. And who knows, it, it might also be a generative feeling for you if it persists like that, because that kind of reclamation yeah. might be part of what spawns you to to create. You know, you never really know. And also, I mean, something I write about in the book is realizing how as hard as my life with my parents was, it would have been twice as hard if I'd been a girl. Because my parents watched me like hawks. And uh, that's why I had to get out of the house to get away from them and really try to extricate myself from their power. If I'd been a girl, I mean, I, I imagine I would have been like held captive until I got married or something. It would have been really, really awful. 
I don't feel like the book is written with any motive per se. Uh, it seems very much a personal story, but I'm wondering if there was something the book could do in the world beyond just telling your story, if, if there was something it could change, if there was a, a message people could get from it, what do you think or what would you like it to be? The first thing I thought of naturally was um, that when kids express a strong feeling that they're in the wrong gender, parents should take that seriously. Doctors should take that seriously. They mean it. Despite the, and I can't believe there's yet another piece of disinformation in the Times, Pamela Paul, this week about how we should listen to the detransitioners, which are minuscule. They're like, I mean, they're like 1% or something of the total, which isn't even that big of people who do transition. Detransitioners are like, that's an obfuscation. It almost never happens. So I, like to get that across. And I didn't want to be talking through my hat because I don't know the science. But in fact, nobody knows the science. But my gut feeling is that this is not a psychological matter, the way it's depicted. I think it's a physiological matter. I think it begins in the womb, seriously. Thank you so much, Lucy, for talking to me today. It was really wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. That was Lucy Sant. Her new book is called I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.